G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Maybe we'll step on some toes this hour. And if that is the case, we won't apologise for that. Uh, We'll take an opportunity here to really start to engage with some of the big issues around the authority of the Bible. No matter which Christian denomination you might be a part of, one of the foundations for your faith will be the Bible. 66 books, 40 authors, are written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The very existence of such a powerful document is evidence of a purposeful creator God who's revealed himself to humanity. The Old Testament tells of the formation of the nation of Israel and foretells the coming of the Messiah. The New Testament begins with the accounts of the life of Jesus the Messiah and the growth of the Christian church as God's plan of salvation goes beyond the people of Israel and extends to the uttermost parts of the earth, even us here in Australia. But the Bible's not without controversy. And the presence of many different denominations is because some groups interpret the Bible differently. What's complicated is that there are all sorts of extremes that on close scrutiny might not look anything much like the original intent. And then, of course, we live in a secular age and arguably a majority of people are not even inclined to pay much attention to the authority of the Bible at all. And what might even be disturbing for us is that many people might be like that in our churches. So a conversation today about how we treat the authority of the Bible with a very special guest, visiting American Bible teacher Phil Johnson, who's executive director of the ministry organization Grace to You. He's a close associate of the well-known Bible teacher John MacArthur and is editor of most of John MacArthur's books. Let me make a special welcome to Phil Johnson. Phil, welcome to Australia. Welcome to 2020. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for having me. Well, Phil, this is a controversial topic, and uh, let me just say, uh, your reputation goes before you. You are a sharpshooter. You don't pull punches. Uh, Almost the reputation of a little bit of a street fighter, rolling up your (laughs) sleeves to defend the authority of the Scriptures. And uh, I don't know whether that's a a good reputation or a bad one, but... uh, uh, but you do like to get engaged in this topic. Yeah, I don't mind controversy, and, and particularly over something as important as the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. I don't want to be pugnacious, but uh, and I don't enjoy fighting for fighting's sake, but uh, when a truth is, is so important that the, people's eternal souls hinge on how they view it and whether they really have faith or not, then I think it's worth fighting for, and this one especially – and, of course, you, as I mentioned, a close associate of John MacArthur and a renowned Bible teacher. People love the way that he really is quite forensic in his approach to interpreting Scripture. Uh, you and John, you've been friends for a long, long time now. Right, since uh, the early 1980s. Uh, I, I heard him preach almost by accident. He was speaking at Moody Bible Institute, and I worked at Moody Press. So my office was you know, on campus. And um, 
they they gave us the hour off to go hear John MacArthur. I was swamped with deadlines, and I wasn't even planning to go. But at the last second, this girl who I was dating, who now is my wife, stuck her head in my door and said, are you going down to hear this guest speaker? And I said, yeah, I was just coming. And uh, so that's how I heard him for the first time. And from the time he opened my, his mouth, my first thought was, this is more biblical in the sense that, I mean, he went to Scripture to prove everything he said. And clearly, the authority of Scripture was foremost in his mind. He And I've heard him say many times since, his opinion doesn't matter. What he thinks about something isn't really important. What's important is, what is the truth? And the only ultimate measure of what's true and what's not is the Bible. In my introduction, I began to just introduce the idea that the fact that we have all sorts of different denominations means that there are different interpretations on the Bible. Uh, Then there are those who are on extremes, and we might be able to identify those who are a part of like a mainstream Christianity, and there's always going to be room for some level of robust uh, engagement about what people believe and we always hope that we can do that in a friendly sort of a way but there are those who are further out towards the extremes right. who might also claim to have the Bible as their guide in faith and practice but sometimes it doesn't look a lot like a biblical Christianity uh, this is uh, the sorts of things you engage in You, do you, you, I know you identify all sorts of different groups and maybe we'll name and maybe we won't today but, uh, but there are all sorts of different places on a spectrum of people who understand a biblical truth. Yeah that's right in fact I was saved out of a, a denomination that had abandoned the faith in the authority of scripture where the, the pastor would get up every Sunday he might tell a Bible story but uh, And I, I was only in junior high at the time, uh, or, or I'd just come out of junior high, high school. My junior high, high school Sunday school teachers used to, they'd look at Bible stories and go through the moral issues with us, but tell us, look, don't take this too seriously. Don't take this literally. Jesus didn't really heal this guy, and things like that. And, and even as a high school student, I thought, well, look, if this is just a myth that teaches us a moral lesson— it's ultimately no better than Aesop's fables. So I'd rather stay home, frankly, and watch the pregame show for the football on Sunday rather than be here in Sunday school. Talk about something that we're not supposed to take seriously. And uh, the pastor called me in when he heard I said that because he was afraid I was about to, you know, apostatize or leave the church. And, and he tried to talk me out of it. But in my conversation with him, it became clear he didn't even believe the Bible was true. And so over a short period of time there, I did leave the church for about a year and uh, and just sort of wandered philosophically and all until I heard a preacher once uh, preaching on the crucifixion of Christ from Isaiah 53. Now, I didn't know much about Scripture, but I knew enough to know that Isaiah is in the Old Testament. And here was this, this perfectly spot-on description of Christ's atoning work on the cross, written 700 years before it actually happened, that that one sermon erased any doubt in my mind ever about whether the Bible is true and authoritative. And okay, let's talk about uh, things like, uh, let me just, you know, uh, shallow and deep. Uh, the idea that, as you're describing, your own experience, and you were a part of a church where things were so shallow 
uh, it would almost diminished any authority that the Bible yep. might have. Uh, God has revealed himself, uh, but all these things are fables. These things are all stories. Then you've got the deep end. And uh, I suspect that uh, if we're talking about on the spectrum, there'll be those listeners today who are some who are saying, well, you know, I think our church is pretty well in that shallow end too. Others are saying, well, hang on, I'd like to defend my church. We're really down this deep end. Uh, what are your thoughts about where you might be? And, and sometimes, as you say, people are on a, a journey. You were right. on a journey. Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't think I would characterize it as shallow and deep because uh, the the Sunday school teacher who who really sparked me to say, why are we even talking about this, was a woman with an earned doctorate and a PhD in philosophy. She was trying to make it sound deep. It just was all shrouded in unbelief, skepticism. And uh, the message I heard that turned me around wasn't particularly deep theologically. It was it was just an exposition of Isaiah 53. So I don't see it as a, a, a battle between what's shallow and what's deep. It's a battle between faith and unbelief. That's, in fact, what one of my conferences here in Australia is going to be about. But it's, it's additionally complex in our generation because – uh, we live in the postmodern era, and uh, the defining factor of postmodernism is the notion that it is your experience that determines truth. So people are conditioned to think experience tells me what's true and what's not. And so your experience is different from mine. You might have a different truth than I do. Truth becomes very pliable and, you know, whatever. And in a system like that, Scripture is not going to be vo- viewed as authoritative. Of course, you've got the idea, too, that you can look at the Scriptures just with the idea of a cognitive understanding trying to put everything into place. Uh, but then we might be cautious not to deny this idea that, uh, you know, that Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, because that in itself is an experiential uh, presence of God and understanding yep. that God is, That's you know, right. wanting to relate to us in a ra- relational way. That's right. Christianity, rightly understood, is definitely w- what the Puritans used to call experimental, but what they meant was experiential. It involves deep experiences, but proper religious experiences are rooted in biblical truth. It's not vice versa. You don't have an experience and by that learn the truth. Valid experiences are a response to the truth of Scripture, and uh, Scripture will convict us of our sin, evoke you know deep repentance, sorrow for our sins, faith in Christ. All of these are definitely experiential, but the experience grows out of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture uh, is what defines the experience, and it's not the other way around. Let me take us into deep water and a little bit of controversy here because some years ago, uh, John MacArthur, who we mentioned, uh, is your good friend and your longtime associate and you are the editor of John's books. He did throw a spanner in the works of a lot of people's faith, uh, caused a lot of people to feel a little disturbed around a book that he wrote some years ago called Strange Fire. 
and uh, there was a few accusations in there uh, that were pointed at various what we might even call mainstream denominations and it really does cause uh, a little consternation for some but this is an interesting aspect and I wonder whether just if we're talking about today engaging and I did say uh, we might stand on a few toes today but give us some impressions here uh, that was a very very confronting book that was written right yeah. and uh, confronting is the word and we ought not to be afraid of being confronted uh, but uh, what are your impressions about that book and were you involved as the editor of that one? Actually, I, that was one book that I had very little input into. I edited a couple of the chapters in it, but uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't take credit for that book. It, book. It's a great book, and the response to it actually has been terrific. The response prior to the book and the conference was a lot of people upset. You're going to criticize my movement, my denomination, but in my experience, people who've actually read the book or listened to the messages from the conference that introduced the book, that's been now five years ago. Everywhere I go, I meet people who say that really helped straighten out my thinking. You mentioned that uh, there are lots of extremes on the on the periphery of Christianity. A lot of people teaching things that have no biblical basis, uh, seeing visions that contradict Scripture, and then proclaiming their vision as if it's more important than Scripture. That's the kind of thing that book attacks, and uh, uh, and it needs to be confronted. It needs to, false prophets need to be called out, pointed out, and and uh, that's what the book does. So I think overall it was it was actually very helpful, and the response to it, the actual response from people who've read it, has been pretty positive. And oftentimes, no doubt, the truth hurts because right. unless somebody is courageous enough to stand up and make a statement, yeah, uh, and even then engage in the argument, even then, uh, hopefully uh, on both sides, a level of humility to be able to say, well, maybe I was yeah. a little too strong here, a little too dogmatic, uh, but then maybe you had a point, and uh, I did need to adjust the way that I think about biblical truth. Yeah, you know, none of us likes to have our toes stepped on. It doesn't feel good, but um, if 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 the gospel hadn't stepped on my toes in the first place, I don't think I would have ever confessed that I was a sinner and repented and found salvation. That's what Jesus was saying when he said, look, it's it's not the the whole people who need a physician, but those who are sick. He didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the realization that I'm wrong and, and profoundly wrong, meaning I'm a sinner before God, that's what gives me the opportunity to set aside my skepticism, my unbelief, and lay hold of Christ and salvation. So uh, I, it's, it's not fun to have our toes stepped on, and it's not really fun to step on somebody else's toes, but I'm glad when our toes get stepped on with the truth. A biblical perspective on life, culture, and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. Wonderful to have you with us, the Friday edition of 2020, and a conversation today could go anywhere you might like to help it go somewhere. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. Our special guest is Phil Johnson. He's executive director of Grace to You, and he doesn't hold back when it comes to a Christian and our responsibility to recognize biblical truth from the scriptures. 1-800-316-316. In fact, Phil, let's take a call. Let's hear from Kevin in Batlow in New South Wales. Hello, Kevin. Welcome along. Hello. How are you doing, Mr. Johnson? Uh, very Kevin. well. Thank you, Kevin. What are your thoughts for our conversation? Well, I happen to agree, but I do think there's a, a thing to think about here. It does take some years to come to that position. I mean, I studied 
ministry college, theology college, and now I'm presently studying through the Israeli Institute. And it does my head in every little nuance, every little jot and tittle, every little comma almost reinforces itself in Scripture. But you don't come to that until you've done a few years serious reading and serious study. And I think in churches today, this is not being critical, but um, if you're looking for a church that's doing some teaching, I think that's very very thin on the ground. You make a really powerful point here, Kevin. Not everybody in the pulpit has been in the pulpit for many years, has been to theological college and has been able to look at all of those intricacies of the scripture. And so we find ourselves uh, with the ordinary person in the pew. They're not going to the Bible college and spending years of study. So we actually get attracted to people who have a level of charisma, a personality. We feel like we relate to them. Uh, Phil, what are your thoughts for someone like Kevin? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree that, uh, in fact, one of the great deficiencies of 21st century church growth philosophy and church leadership philosophy is that um, all the experts seem to want us to downplay teaching. And that's why so many churches are full of entertainment. You know, you, the music might go for an hour and a half, and then you have a 15-minute sermonette. That's not enough teaching. And if you read what Scripture says about Worship. There's not a whole lot of detailed instructions on what an order of service ought to be, but the one thing that is consistently stressed in Scripture is the centrality of preaching. That's the method by which God chose to save those who believe, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. His dying epistle to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, the the heart of his instructions to Timothy, as he's, as he's preparing to give his life for the gospel, Paul says, preach the word. In season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort. He's talking about the detailed and systematic teaching ministry. It's not entertainment in order to draw a large crowd. It's instruction in order to, you know, bring people to where they ought to be. And that is, there is a dearth of biblical preaching and, and sound teaching in the church today. And before we come down heavy on local churches, because there are going to be different leaders who are at different levels of maturity, and uh, Kevin, uh, for your uh, situation, uh, no doubt, uh, in this day and age, 21st century, we have at our fingertips opportunities for significant resources. So uh, oh, even yes. though we might find ourselves in a church where the top level of Bible teaching might not happen every Sunday, there might be some other dimensions to that church which are really, really strong. But we can access those uh, from different uh, resource positions. A quick comment from you on that, Phil. Yeah, that's one of the good things uh, about the Internet era. Uh, A lot of bad stuff there on the Internet. But that's also where I would recommend people to go if they feel uh, it's it's been impossible for me to find solid biblical teaching. There There is some on the Internet. Thank you so much to Kevin from Batlow in New South Wales taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call from Sue in Underwood in Queensland. Hi, Sue. Welcome along. Good morning. Sue, what are your thoughts? Um, just um, I, uh, I was just been doing my housework and stuff this morning and um, caught my attention with um, uh, the name John MacArthur being dropped there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, I just wanted to say that um, in regards to the topic of conversation that um, I've actually found uh, while reading uh, a particular book that I just recently purchased uh, with John MacArthur that 
I'm actually finding it more like a Bible study, which is really awesome because of the way that it's been actually written and you get to unpack it and based on scripture, that's what's actually helping me. Um, I don't know if that makes sense with what I'm saying, but... Yeah, that um, makes great sense, Sue. I, I, uh, he mentioned that I edit most of John MacArthur's major books and his books come out of his preaching ministry, which his approach Mm. to preaching is verse by verse biblical exposition. So the yeah. church, the the books sort of mirror that uh, because they come from the, the material that he's preached, and so a lot of it is very much like a Bible study. It'll definitely yeah, no, be biblical. Awesome. Yeah, no, it's awesome, and I'm really getting a lot out of it, and it makes a lot of sense. And through the way that it's written and the truth of the Scripture, I'm finding that I'm taking notes, and that it's just going through it, and it's actually helping me to understand and to be able to apply that to my life. Um, but the way that it's written, it's just... It's what you would expect a book to be written, if that makes sense. But it's just, it's really good to be able to explore that and have that explained in those ways. Thank you, Um, Sue. Because, yeah, awesome. Sue, it is a great compliment. Thank you so much for your call. 1-800-316-316. If you'd like to join in our conversation, our special guest is Bible teacher Phil Johnson. Uh, Phil, let me ask you about this level of maturity in church, because... There's a bit of a spectrum here. In some churches, it takes so many years of study and preparation and, uh, you know, what they might call a, uh, you know, a, uh, in the, the, the preparation, uh, uh, the formation that goes on. It takes so long to create someone who's capable of leading a church. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who are saying, well, you can be led by the Holy Spirit today. And uh, without all of that preparation, you can go out and be a leader. You've got a testimony. Uh, There are resources that you can use. We're going to back you all the way, but you don't have that maturity behind you. And that formation process may not have given that level of depth. Uh, But there is a certain sense in which some criticisms come around those who maybe haven't gone through all of those years of study to be able to be church leaders. Yeah, and and I say this as someone who never went to seminary. I I went to Bible college, uh, graduated from Moody Bible Institute, and intended to go to seminary and pursue pastoral ministry. But I got into publishing and editing and so that's how I ended up where I am. So I don't have a seminary degree. This is not about that. It's not about the you know paperwork you've done or what degrees you have. But someone who says, yeah, I'm brand new Christian and I feel the Holy Spirit leading me and I'm just going to jump into ministry, I'm scared by people like that because they're not following Scripture. Scripture is very clear that we, we should not lay hands on, too, on someone too soon. A person needs to mature in the faith before he can really legitimately be qualified to stand up and teach other people. So we might hope that those who have that maturity in church leadership have a host of people who are their disciples that are capturing along the way the spirit of what it is to lead and those disciplines that it takes to be able to understand and to rightly divide the word of truth. Right. Again, uh, back to Paul's closing instructions to Timothy in chapter 2 of that last epistle, he said to him, look, the things you've heard from me, commit to others who will be willing to teach you know, younger men as well. So there's a plan built into Scripture for the training of church leaders, and and it goes all the way back to the Apostle Paul who taught Timothy, told him to teach the next generation, they should teach the next generation. And the one thing that's missing out of those instructions that you, you, you often hear today, but Paul didn't say this, is now you need to adapt this for the current generation or you're going to lose them. Paul said, you teach them exactly what you've heard from me. 
And if it's truth, and and truth is anchored in Scripture, and Scripture is the ultimate uh, test of every truth claim, then we shouldn't have the concept that truth changes from generation to generation. We should be preaching the same thing the apostles did. And uh, and, and I think too many people who, who want to step into leadership in the church today have invented something new of their own, and that's not a good thing. Let's take another call. Adam's on the line from Victoria. Hi, Adam. Welcome along. Uh, thanks very much. Adam, what are uh, your thoughts? Well, I've just got a question. Um, there's a, I've come from a Pentecostal church background, and uh, often we uh, talk about hearing from the Holy Spirit or feeling the Holy Spirit or uh, so forth. Uh, John MacArthur in Strange Fire seems to call um, part of, a lot of this out as being false. Uh, one of my concerns um, goes back to Jesus when he called out the Pharisees um, about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Um, so my question is, if people are attributing to the Holy Spirit something that is not of the Holy Spirit, or maybe even worse, a deceiving spirit, is that blasphemy? And does that put them in a state of sin that is unforgivable? And likewise, if it's the other way around, if someone is concerned that something is not of the Holy Spirit, how can they go about expressing that concern without actually blaspheming the Holy Spirit if they're wrong? Adam, now we're into the controversy. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> question. I'm glad you asked that question, actually, because I think it's one that confuses a lot of people, and there are a lot of superstitious ideas about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is it? Can I accidentally commit it? And I think it's it's a fear that we might accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit in a way that's unforgivable has kept a lot of people from being discerning because it's easier just not to question anything than it is to put yourself at risk by saying, well, I don't believe that's real. And, you know, what if you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit? A lot of people think that way. Uh, so first you have to go back and look at that passage. What was Jesus saying? That's Matthew 12. And he's dealing there with some very hostile uh, Pharisees who knew very well that he was the Messiah. I mean, that's throughout the New Testament. You have uh, Pharisees saying things like, what are we going to do? If we let him go, everybody's going to believe in him. And and so they knew very well that they were rejecting the true Messiah, and it was the intentionality of that sin that made it unforgivable. And we had to cut that out because the news doesn't wait for us, and we have to go to news. He was raising some issues around uh, some of the controversy in the Strange Fire material, uh, which did target Pentecostals and uh, the idea of uh, cursing and blessing. I think those sorts of things were the sorts of things he was talking about. Uh, you did indicate uh, while the news is on, there's more to the answer than we were able to cover. Yeah. Uh, for that listener whose name was James, uh, that was uh, sorry, that was Adam. Uh, what some more thoughts on that? Well. Um in the context where Jesus is talking about um, the unpardonable sin, he, he actually starts that with a vast promise of forgiveness. He says, prior to saying there is an unpardonable sin, he says, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven. And, of course, he's talking about people who repent. Those sins are forgivable. But he says there's one sin, the blasphemy. And he uses the he uses the definite article there, the blasphemy. There's one kind of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And in the context, it's clear what he's talking about. He's talking to some Pharisees who had, with their eyes wide open, knowing who Jesus was, had not only rejected him, but they were trying to turn other people away from him. 
that's the unpardonable sin. And what makes it unpardonable, as I said just before the break, is it, its intentionality. These men had so hardened their hearts, they weren't going to repent. So their sin was unforgivable. Uh, it doesn't mean that every accidental blasphemy that invokes the Holy Spirit's name is therefore going to be unpardonable. But uh, I think John MacArthur's point in the book, and Adam made this this point also as he asked the question, and it's a good one, if you're really concerned about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, it, it's just as dangerous to attribute to the Holy Spirit things he's never said. People who say, well, the Holy Spirit told me this, and then they make a prophecy. And, and let's be honest, the vast majority of prophecies like that turn out to be false. So they're dangerous because there's such a mixture of falseness and truth. And, and even, even people who advocate that sort of spontaneous prophecy, you know, um, private prophecies or whatever you want to call it, even the, the strongest advocates of that, I would include, say, Wayne Grudem and so on, would admit that the vast majority of them are, turn out to be false. They're not reliable. And if they're not reliable, then we, we should never put them on the same level as divine inspiration. You make a powerful point here because oftentimes when you are a part of a mainstream Christian group and you might call yourself evangelical, you might call yourself Pentecostal, and you start to recognize that there are some who are further to the extreme, even some groups, and we might even say that some groups are under that banner of a cult or in, they're in heresy or they're in some sort of error because they have an extra-biblical capacity with a special book that goes alongside or a special magazine that comes out that actually gives interpretation to the Scripture. And you're making an important point here by saying that even in the realm of personal prophecy, and uh, a caution here I think you're giving is that uh, if you are into a level of prophetic utterance, uh, there needs to be caution there because you're almost almost over the line and doing the same sorts of things that you might actually see in some of these other more extreme groups. Have I got you right here on that? Yes, and, and also to say that in and of itself is a very serious sin, so serious that in the Old Testament it was punishable by death. And uh, I think it's Deuteronomy 18 that talks about the what an abomination it is to say God has spoken when in fact he hasn't. To put words into God's mouth is really the very height of blasphemy. I imagine that if I was uh, making a little bit of a defense here, there is a certain sense, isn't there, that when someone brings a prophecy, they're oftentimes using analogies or even metaphors, those things that come to heart, come to mind, and they speak those things as a reflection of a biblical truth. And there is a certain cross-cultural capacity that comes when people actually bring that prophecy uh, that does reflect a biblical truth, but not in the first century agrarian historic setting, but into whatever culture that they might be coming into. And so there comes a opportunity to be able to speak of something that they feel is from the Holy Spirit that actually does illuminate biblical truth. That would be one way of talking about prophecy. And that wouldn't be something that you'd be outlawing, but you would say you need to be very cautious with it. Well, I would... I Actually, I, I would think it's unwise ever to say, the Lord told me this, when you don't really know if that was your own imagination or the Lord telling you that or whatever. It's fine to share insights on Scripture and say, you know, maybe this is saying that, uh, or here's my interpretation, or even here's what I believe it says. 
Uh, you can be as definite and dogmatic as you want as long as you don't blame it on the Holy Spirit, n- knowing that you might be wrong. So I I never encourage people to say, the Lord told me this, unless they heard an audible voice from God actually telling them that. And uh, and that's that's almost never the case. So, and of course, uh, people who are a part of uh, Pentecostal charismatic churches, and uh, sometimes uh, somebody raised in a conversation with me just the other day, they use the term baptocostal, uh, which is like uh, <laughs> there are a lot more Baptist churches these days that are very charismatically inclined. Right. Uh, but for every church that has some level of uh, opportunity for people to exercise gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, there is always some necessary need for a tight rein on that because otherwise you get things like what people call car park prophecies yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, that can have a really disruptive effect on people's lives yeah in fact i uh, i attended the uh, uh well let's say one of the largest and most influential uh, churches where this was being promoted pretty heavily back in the 1990s and um uh, a prophet in the row i was sitting in stood up and began to make a prophecy and as he spoke, it was clear what he's saying is he's, he's, he was objecting to a decision that the elders of that church had made. So he's saying, thus says the Lord, the elders of this church are under my wrath because they did this decision on Thursday night, that sort of thing. And then when he finished, another prophet on the other side of the room stood up and prophesied against the first prophet. And I thought, now the leaders of this church have a real dilemma on their hand because which prophet are they going to side with? And they didn't. They just ignored the whole thing as if it never happened. And I thought that the confusion left in the wake of that kind of, you know, ramshackle prophecy where everybody just gives what he's feeling at the time. And it was absolutely clear to me that that was this man's opinion and the other was this man's opinion. I don't think the Lord had given either of them prophecies. They were using that as an excuse to wage what uh, would have been a conflict in any church, and it's not a good idea to attribute that to the voice of the Holy Spirit. We're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from James in Kyabram in Victoria. Hi, James. Welcome along. Hello, uh, Neil. Um, sorry, I didn't catch the other man. Uh, Phil. Phil is our guest today. Both Phil, Johnsons. Hi, hi, you, you might not like what I've got to share, but um, I'm hoping you'll let me share it because... Uh, I have experienced times where I felt God's spoken to me directly, and I'm not going to claim to be the wisest man in the street, but um, and that's what makes me think it was God, because I thought I couldn't come up with it. But I was fortunate when I got saved, I went uh, under a man by the name of Lewis Anchin, and he said to us that we go and hear a minister, but we might not agree with everything, but we glean from them, like you would in a harvest field, you glean from them what you agree with, take it on board, but the other stuff, like it says with a friend, you, you sort out the grain from the chaff and, you know, chuck out what, what's no good and keep for yourself. And that, that, that there's a contrast there I would like to mention is I've worked in the drug and alcohol uh, scenario and I've also been in the church and I've seen people really making a go for it in God and they make one little mistake and people will write them off and they'll never go, ever go back and say to them, how are things going now? Did you get things right or anything like that? But someone in the drug and alcohol, they can come in, they can be absolutely, you know, their life's obliterated by drugs. They leave the program because they can't accept it at the time and they come back and people will embrace them like nothing's wrong. Then people, the Christians, we, me included, we need to get it into perspective People are really making a go for it for God, and God didn't promise that it was going to be a better roses for those people who are going to lead. They're under attack, and we need to be a little less harder 
on those in leadership and, ex- and express the grace of God towards them and just find out for themselves. Don't go by hearsay and gossip. Go and ask the person, how are you doing? You know, I've been in the church a James, long time. James, you're making some good points here, and let me just pick up on the fact that you're making a good reference here uh, to what we might all understand as a level of judgmentalism. And it leads me, and I'll get to Phil's uh, perspective on some of the things you're saying, but it does lead me to think that there might be certain forums uh, for discussion at certain levels. And uh, for a general populace, uh, there needs to be a lot of grace. Uh, for up-and-coming people who are intending some level of ministry from the pulpit. Uh, But your thoughts on on what James is sharing, Phil? Yeah, no, I'm all in favor of grace, and the Scripture itself tells us uh, even when you have to correct someone who's wrong, you should do it with grace. And um, it's not a natural tendency for most of us to do that, so it is is a thing we have to be careful about. But, But nevertheless, even in saying that, Scripture acknowledges that there are errors that that require a harsh rebuke paul told timothy or he told titus rather uh, to to rebuke them harshly he was talking about a specific group of uh, heretics who needed a sharp rebuke that's sometimes necessary it shouldn't be our default position grace should be but there are times when you know grace required even christ to make a whip and turn over the tables of the money changers so some errors are so serious that they they really do require a, a, a sharp correction and back to our subject on the authority of scripture i would say even even if someone i would say this to any of my friends who believe they're actually hearing the voice of god speak to them my counsel would still be that no matter what you hear in your head no matter what you, what voice you imagine is speaking to you 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 have to regard scripture as a superior authority scripture is god breathed and and it never says that never, nothing ever gives us any reason to think that that voice in your head is breathing out the truth of god like scripture does so test it by scripture thank you so much james and just to tack on to that uh because we might say, whose responsibility is it to bring the rebuke? And I think what James is saying is that people come down like a ton of bricks on someone who makes right. an error of judgment. No. But the pastor is really going to be the uh, the the last, uh, you know, the buck stops here. Uh, yeah. That the past the pastor's responsibility to make the rebuke, not the people in church. No, that's right. And in fact, I know what he's saying. I've seen people come down like a ton of bricks on someone for a minor error, and there are people who get so caught up. In the idea that, you know, scripture does call for rebukes every now and then, that that becomes their default position. And and my counsel is look out for people like that, too. They're not going to be uh, very edifying for you. Thank you so much, James. Let's take another call. Josh is on the line from Horsham in Victoria. Hi, Josh. Welcome. Hey, how you doing? Very well. Josh, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I've just got a question. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, it talks about uh, the coming of the lawless one and, and all sorts of uh, false miracles, signs and wonders. Um, how can we discern nowadays, I guess, lots of things get called a miracle from God and said that it is God, but, you know, obviously it's hard to actually know for sure. Uh, Josh, good question. Phil, uh, the, false miracles, signs and wonders. That is a great question, and I think a lot of the, a lot of the miracles that, uh, that you see, particularly on TV and some of the big, you know, uh, high-production, expensive, uh, televangelists who, who talk a lot about money. And if you just do a little research on the miracles they do, uh, a lot of them are, are just 
there, there's no way to verify that that's a miracle, and some of them turn out to be false. They'll pronounce someone healed. There are numerous documented cases of this. The person dies a week later from the illness they were supposedly healed from. Uh, I grew up uh, with in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is sort of the you know that's Oral Roberts University. A lot of faith healers there, and my best friend was the son of a famous faith healer who who did these stadium sized. Uh, healing ceremonies and um uh, just shortly after i was converted he came down with a case of incurable bone cancer and died a slow very painful lingering death and his son my best friend abandoned the faith because he figured that uh he realized he'd always suspected i think that a lot of these miracles that were being claimed were fake and uh it destroyed his his faith he figured everything was fake and so that's the danger of it. There are so many false miracles out there today, just as Scripture predicted, and we need to be cautious and discerning. Uh, deception is a significant issue, and uh, Jesus warned about that, didn't he, in Matthew 24. Take care that no one deceives you. And uh, deception is one of those issues that even can happen within our Christian churches. And uh, great for us to be able to talk about those miracles that are unverifiable and indeed may even be false miracles. Because oftentimes on this program, and you'll appreciate, Phil, we talk about miracles and we talk about verified miracles and we talk about those ones that have evidence to them. And so we don't deny that there are miracles happening but, yes, we must always be mindful that on the flip side, there are going to be some that are unverified and therefore uh, very difficult to be able to say, this is God. It's interesting, isn't it, when you read the Old Testament and Moses you know, did these miracles and then the magicians of Egypt uh, imitated some of them. And you know that they didn't have divine power to work miracles. This was some sort of sleight of hand or trickery. And yet, even as you read about it in Scripture, it doesn't explain how they did it. Uh, and you see this on TV, too, with people who, you know, professional magicians who do sleight of hand and tricks. And I see some of those things and think, how in the world did that guy do that? So we're not to be gullible. It is possible to fake miracles. And uh, the distinctive thing about Jesus' miracles is they weren't the kind of thing you could fake. He he healed people with congenital lameness and blindness, and he he he, he took mud that he made from his own spittle and cured a guy's blindness who'd been blind from birth. These these are not the sort of miracles that we're seeing, you know, on television today. So so it's right for us to be a little bit skeptical and very, very discerning. Discerning is the key. Let's take one more call. Kath is on the phone from another one, Batlow in New South Wales. Hi, Kath. Welcome. Hello. Welcome. How are you, Kath? I'm well, thank you. That's good. What have you got to contribute to our conversation today? Uh, now, I've just been listening to you both. Um, you're making some very good points, I think. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, I find a lot of people, you were saying before, um, you know, God told me or I had a vision, make sure that it um, comes up uh, in check with the scriptures. Um, some people seem to think they are hearing from God or they've had a vision and then they go on using a thing called proof texting. So they just grab scriptures from here to prove that God, you know, that God's backing them up, if you know what I mean. Yes. And a lot of it is taken completely out of context and um, is quite dangerous. So I know what you're saying is right, but I think keeping it in um, so that people are aware of not just 
Um, well, here's a classic example. You will pick up snakes, um, and they will, you know, by no means hurt you. Well, obviously, that's a very bad case of proof texting, if you know what I mean. Mm. Uh, you're making a really good point here. But a uh, response from Phil. Yes, in fact, I, I'm glad she mentioned the snake handling thing. There are these cults in America where people uh, handle poisonous snakes, deadly snakes, in order to uh, uh, prove their faith and so on. In fact, there's a YouTube video of a guy who comes from two or three generations of snake handling cults. And his father, and I believe also his grandfather, or at least one other relative, were killed by poisonous snake bites to the face while they were in church doing what they considered to be like a religious sacrament. And uh, this guy's doing it for YouTube, and the snake bites him in the ear, and his ear just spurts blood. It's a frightening thing. And I think he survived it, but not without injury. And so clearly, whatever that scripture is saying didn't refer to what this guy is doing, right? I mean, anybody who can see ought to be able to see that. Uh, there was a case in scripture where Paul was bitten by a, a, a snake, and he shook it off and suffered no ill effects. I think what Jesus was describing there is is uh, apostolic verification. This is how you know the apostles who were writing Scripture are believable. You're not supposed to just believe everybody who says, God told me. But, but when you've got an apostle who can do an undeniable miracle like that, then that was authentication of his authority to speak for God. And and you don't have that today with these snake handling people. They do die from their snake bites, and that in and of itself is proof that their teaching is wrong and dangerous. Kath from Batlow, thank you so much for your call. And we'll put a line under any more calls, just a couple of minutes remaining in our conversation. And so we're talking about the authority of Scripture today. And to wrap things up here, Phil, the idea of not taking a proof text, but the idea that there might be theological reflection on what we might talk about as a, a theology that is taking Genesis through Revelation and being able to reflect on truth uh, in the themes of Scripture and uh, to be able to understand biblical truth, not just because you pick out a, a an odd piece of Scripture here and there, but to get back to what would be an orthodox foundation for how you understand biblical truth, rightly dividing it. That would be a, a way to settle on an authority for Scripture. Right, and rightly dividing it is absolutely important for anyone who's going to stand up and teach. And Scripture's full of instruction on how to do this. I mean, even in the Psalms, which are, you know, they're worship choruses, and yet, look how much there is in the Psalms about meditating on the Word of God and night watches and things like that. David knew God's Word because he had contemplated it carefully, and that's what he thought about. And and I, I fear too many people today who are eager to hear a word from the Lord want to hear it outside Scripture. They're not really students of Scripture. They don't know Scripture very well. And that's a dangerous position to be in, to think that a voice you hear in your head, an imaginary idea that might pop into your head, you don't know where that came from. You know where Scripture came from. So that's the first thing every Christian ought to study and be familiar with. And and it's our duty. It's a command to to learn and and uh, memorize and meditate on the Word of God. And I think that's just not stressed enough in today's experience-oriented church. So if the Scriptures truly are our measure of what we do as Christians in faith and practice, 
uh, a very close attention, uh, even a word of caution to come back to the scriptures and let the scriptures be a guide, a verification for the things that we might hear so that we might avoid this whole idea of being deceived uh, in an age when, uh, yes, we are all open to all sorts of information coming from so many different directions. We have run out of time. Our special guest this hour has been Phil Johnson. He's the executive director of Grace to You, and I did mention a long-time associate of Bible teacher John MacArthur. He's speaking tomorrow at the Re-Engage Conference on Evangelism and Apologetics in Ormiston in Brisbane. There is a website, reengage.org.au. There are tickets too at the door. Next week, Phil's going to be in Sydney at the Emmanuel Baptist Church in Glenwood. He'll be at the Recalibrate Conference that's on there. And then the Australian Fellowship of Bible Believers Churches Conference is on the 10th to the 12th of September. It's an evening conference and uh, you can get that detail too at the Emmanuel Baptist Church in Glenwood. Uh, Phil Johnson at Grace to You, the Grace to You website, very easy, gty.org. And of course, Grace to You, as I mentioned, on air early Saturday mornings, later on Sunday nights on Vision. Check your program guide for your time zone for what time you can hear John MacArthur and Grace to You. Phil Johnson, thank you so much for taking some time to come and share your thoughts with us today on 2020. Thanks for having me. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.